Fantasy Animation is a completely free online educational resource dedicated to examining the relationship between fantasy storytelling and the medium of animation. We publish blog posts from academics, animators and VFX artists for people to access, as well as these podcasts that take listeners on an informative but hopefully entertaining journey through the fascinating world of fantasy animation. To find out more, visit fantasy-animation.org or subscribe via your favourite podcast subscription service. While you're there, give us a quick like, click the subscribe button, or give us a quick review while you're at it, as we could always use the extra help. For now, do enjoy the show. Hello listeners, old, new and penguin, and welcome once again to the Fantasy Animation Podcast with me, Chris Holiday, And me, Alex Sargent. I know why you're laughing, Alex. Uh, this week's episode is a real toe-tapper as we take on George Miller's 2006 computer animated musical feature, uh, Happy Feet, produced by the US studio Village Roadshow with Australian animation and VFX studio Animal Logic. Uh, now, the film certainly offers uh, a real intrigue from an animation studies perspective. I think in many ways it represents the sort of explosion of motion capture technologies in the first decade of the new millennium. Uh, and I think it also raises questions about the industrial formal role of star voices, sound, in animation uh, and the labour of motion capture technologies more broadly. Um, so Alex, I mean, does a film uh, in which uh, a singing, dancing group of penguins, I mean, is that in any way fantasy? It's one of those movies, isn't it, that people infuriate me by saying, well, I didn't realise that was a fantasy. And you're like, you, you saw the thing, right? Yeah. No, mm-hmm. yeah, lots of things to talk about. Um, you know, animal fables, anthropomorphism, um, animals as people, not as people, um, as representations, as not representations, as fantastical others, um, and all kinds of um, uh, fun in between, I'm sure. So, yeah, there's lots of um, fantastical things, um, for better and for worse, to unpack in this movie. <laughs> Yes, yes. And thankfully joining us as we uh, tap dance perilously through the film's icy landscapes, uh, and that's enough for the snowy penguin uh, gags <laughs> for now, uh, he says, uh, is Dr. Hannah Hammett, a senior lecturer in media and communication at Cardiff University's School of Journalism, Media and Culture, who she joined in September 2017. She's previously worked uh, as a lecturer in film studies uh, at King's, and it was actually during Hannah's time at King's where Alex and I first had the pleasure of meeting her, and perhaps also where our knowledge of her problematic relationship to Happy Feet first became apparent. Um, it was also during this time that Hannah uh, published her first monograph on post-feminist fatherhood in contemporary US film, uh, Routledge 2014. Uh, and since then, she's gone on to publish on recessionary reality television, austerity, contemporary celebrity stardom uh, and post-feminist media cultures. Uh, so Hannah, thank you for being our special guest on this latest podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So Hannah, I mean, given that this, uh, you know, given that extensive research and, and, and publication record, Happy Feet might seem a little bit left field, I think, in lots of ways. And yet it really, knowing you, uh, it really isn't. From what I know about your, um, yeah, let's say vexed relationship to the film, it's obviously something that interests you in lots of ways. In fact, just before we came on air, you said, quote, I'm mainly here for the racial politics. So uh, <laughs> how did you happen upon Happy Feet? Uh, and perhaps how does it inter- intersect with your scholarly uh, journey so far? Well, I happened upon it originally in the same way that uh, everyone happened upon it back in 2006, which was in the cinema when the teaser trailers uh, for it first started uh, circulating. And right right from that moment, right from the first moment that I saw the first teaser trailer for Happy Feet, I was obsessed with it. It was just, it, it's just a visual spectacle, visual and oral spectacle 
of a penguin tap dancing to Stevie Wonder. And instantly my mind started whirring with the uh, uh, racial connotations uh, carried uh, by that. Uh, but then off I went uh, and didn't really think much more about it at the time. I was a PhD student at the time at the University of East Anglia. And uh, then when the film finally did come out, I started to, to think about it in terms of fatherhood. I, I always think about films in terms of fatherhood, as you know. And um, because like one significant strand of the narrative concerns the relationship uh, between uh, protagonist uh, Mumble, who is the character voiced by Elijah Wood, which I'm sure something we will talk about later, uh, uh, and his father, Memphis, who is voiced by Hugh Jackman. Uh, uh, and then several years later, when Happy Feet 2 came out, uh, that film was likewise uh, very much concerned with the relationship between Mumble and his own son, Eric. Uh, and and it also <laughs> it also seemed to constitute a significant part of a noteworthy cluster of films about penguin fatherhood that all came out over the course of that few years. The Happy Feet films are arguably the most prominent examples, but there was also the documentary March of the Penguins, voiced by Morgan Freeman, which is also uh, uh, significant to our discussion today, I think, because there are a number of obvious intertextual references made in Happy Feet to um, uh, March of the Penguin and in some problematic ways when viewed through the lens of the cultural politics of race. Uh, and then perhaps a less well-remembered re example, Mr. Popper's Penguins, which is a Jim Carrey star vehicle in which a bunch of baby penguins kind of imprint on him and he has to parent them. Um, so I know th that's niche, I know, like penguin fatherhood movies. Um, but but that, that was like how... That was the relationship of Happy Feet to my scholarly journey. But uh, over the long period of time that's since passed between uh, when Happy Feet came out in 2006 and now, um, yeah, the main thing that I have remained obsessed with over time uh, is the film's cultural politics of race, um, especially with regard uh, to the relationship between uh, 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 the vocal performances and the cultural politics of race and also mocap performances yeah so i mean i uh, that's let's start with that then because i've got pages of notes on this movie we, we've just done a podcast previous to this episode on inception and i wrote down like filmers dream question mark and that that did everything here i have pages of notes um about the dancing penguin politics of this all and i'm only skimming the surface so why don't we start with that what so take us back to the trailer and talk us through the, your experience of the two movies what what are the racial politics of penguins um, well, um, the, the the penguin tap dancing to Stevie Wonder uh, is an example uh, of what I would describe as neo-minstrelsy for the extent to which it um, references blackface song and dance traditions of the kind that were made popular in America during slavery um, uh, and for the white appropriation of culture uh, that's inherent to that. Um, in that instance, uh, like that's one of the many... That's one major and one of the many ways in which that, that um, uh, white appropriation of black culture takes place in Happy Feet is uh, through the erasure of the black star uh, and through the invisibility of the black star's uh, performance. So as I mentioned um, when Chris asked me his question just now, the, the, the star that was billed as playing the character of Mumble, who we see in that teaser trailer, 
uh, tap dancing to Stevie Wonder uh, was Elijah Wood, who I'm sure your listeners know is a white actor. I'm sure your listeners enjoyed your lovely episode on the Lord of the Rings uh, uh, in which he came up. Um, And it's true that Elijah Wood uh, provided the vocal performance um, for the dialogue of the character of uh, Mumble. But what was really striking about the teaser trailer campaign is that it sells the film to audiences largely on the strength of the spectacle of the penguin tap dancing and and not on the strength of Elijah Wood's vocal performance or star power. Um, and the, the penguin's tap dancing was provided by Savian Glover, who um, is a very well-known American uh, tap dancing star and actor. Uh, and and uh, not only did he provide... Um, the physical performance for uh, Mumble, he also choreographed the dance routines uh, and sequences uh, in the film. But of course, his name and his likeness is used nowhere in the marketing campaign for Happy Feet. And unless you happen to like own the DVD and have watched some special features, you might be forgiven for not knowing anything about his performance uh, or, or his involvement in the characterization of the tap dancing penguin, because at no point does he figure Uh, anywhere in the trailers or the ads for that film, and nor does his name appear uh, in the opening credits. Uh, I'm sure that this is something that we can uh, carry on talking about in our discussion, Um, uh, but that relates troublingly back to some uh, Hollywood industrial practices of the past that likewise rendered the performance of the Black Star in a film invisible. Yeah, I think the the before we before we again before we came on air, you said that you wanted to sort of leave the animation and fantasy t- to us, and actually, and you know, and you were going to deal with the, the racial the racial politics, but actually, it seems that there is an intrinsic and fundamental relationship between exactly the the the, the problematic racial politics of the film and the processes by which we might consider it to be animation. Um, I'd forgotten actually that it ends with the sort of the uh, live action sequences by any other name the film is a, is a computer animated film and it does have some live action sequences at the end to sort of show the um, I guess the environmentalist narrative kind of coming to head and the dangers of, of uh, over, overfishing and that sort of environmental sensibility that kind of becomes clear and the, and the debate that the film stages around uh, marine harvesting which is which is sort of perhaps interesting in the sense that it presents the power of animation as characters in the film watch the footage from the film as part of its sort of, yeah, kind of political agenda. But yeah, I mean, the film, certainly from an animation studies perspective, has gained this... I mean, it's notorious because of exactly the the, um, sort of motion capture processes that you that you described and actually when me and Alex did our Lord of the Rings episode we we um I think we gestured to it but I not knowing my Lord of the Rings as well as Alex uh, in the this is very much a post Gollum film I think uh and and certainly motion capture has been used sparingly I think rather than exhaustively in in computer animated films so the Polar Express Monster House Happy Feet uh, Beowulf, A Christmas Carol, um, and The Adventures of Tintin, perhaps. Um, it has a wider berth in in sort of CG live action. Uh, I don't want to say composites or hybrids, because I know Alex also resists that that, that idea a little bit. But um, yeah, I mean, if we're thinking of, of stuff like, you know, Avatar, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, uh, the recent Mowgli, Legends of the Jungle, all these kind of, directed by Andy Serkis, all these kinds of films, as well as video games and, and, and so forth. But motion capture seems very much a technology of that first sort of 10 years. And its death knell was really signal 
signalled by Mars Needs Mums in, in 2011 sort of culminated that first you're laughing Hannah in a way that suggests you both know the film and the narrative around it but yeah it sort of culminated that first wave or decade of interest in, in motion capture this film Happy Feet it's obviously squarely right in the middle 2006 um, uh, and actually I think Miller and we'll hopefully talk a bit about about um, uh, George Miller directing both this Happy Feet and the second Happy Feet. Um, he was one of a number of directors at the time that were moving from live action into animation. So Zack Snyder directs Legends of the Guardians, The Owls of Gahul. Gore Verbinski directs Rango, which is obviously an episode we've done previously. And then Spielberg and Peter Jackson make uh, The Adventures of Tintin. So um, there's something interesting, I think, around the industrial sort of narrative of, of, of the film and its, its use of sort of motion capture. But I'd never really thought about it's place as a case study and that sort of relationship between on the one hand I mean I remember teaching the film and asking the students did it make you feel uncomfortable and they kind of almost university said yes it did and so it's sort of on the one hand purports to be I don't necessarily want to say post-racial harmony but there's something very harmonious about its narrative but then at the same time it's got an incredibly regressive representation of of minority you know is exactly in the way that you say that sort of blackface performance the occlusion of saving Glover's performance uh, and yeah the fact that he only seems to exist in those sort of like penguin school like special features on the dvd where he he's sort of his labor and his contribution uh, and his skill and expertise and all that sort of stuff is is systematically occluded from the finished film only to be sort of centralized in a way in the making of of, of the of the film and so I think there's yeah lots to say about that, or it seems like the the, the film status as as a particular kind of animation and as a particular kind of motion capture animation um, is is entirely fundamental to exactly that that sort of racial politics that you're you're describing that you know these are uh, you know, we can we could talk a lot about how the little penguins are wearing bow ties and I really don't want to talk about how the little penguins are wearing bow ties but I feel like oh I think be- we should. Yes. Um, well, there we go. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there is lots to sort of say about what, what the, the film is doing beyond its, you know, it's interesting because of sound and, and dance and movement and performance and um, how it taps into Robin Williams' star persona and all the sort of fun things about the movie that we that we can definitely get on to, to talking about. But, you know, as you say, Hannah, it does all this stuff around um, stereotyping, racial difference. Um, but there are at least four things that I want to talk about more picking up um, from uh, the things that Chris has said there. One certainly is uh, uh, the bow ties. Uh, another oh. uh, is the vocal performances of Robin Williams. Another is what Chris said about the film's status as a post-Gollum mocap film uh, related to what Chris said um, about post-racial discourse in the film. So... Uh, Alex, you seemed like you wanted to talk about the bow ties, so why don't we do that first? Sounds great. So I'm sure that you guys noticed that as Mumble is transitioning from being a little baby penguin into an adolescent penguin into a post-adolescent penguin, he starts shedding his downy baby penguin feathers uh, uh, in a very particular pattern. Uh, And it's noteworthy for two reasons. One is that um, uh, this... uh, happens uh, much later for Mumble uh, than it does to all his peers uh, that he was born with. Um, and uh, and this is related to the fact that he has kind of stunted development. And this, this also links back to more things I want to talk about concerning penguin fatherhood 
Uh, and and the reason that he has stunted uh, development is because, uh, as we know from all the penguin movies that we watched uh, in the early to mid 2000s, male penguins are are the ones who are left to care for the penguin eggs uh, during the Antarctic winter um, when the uh, penguin uh, mothers go off hunting. Uh, and while Memphis was in charge uh, of uh, the the egg that his wife, Norma Jean, voiced by Nicole Kidman, had left him with, he made the fatal error uh, of dropping the egg. Uh, and this, uh, so this is the narrative exposition that is used to later explain why Mumble is so different from all of the other uh, penguins in that emperor uh, penguin community and um uh, i hadn't thought about this before until i talked about it with my students um but when 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 mumble is born dancing uh it marks and it marks him out as different from all of the other penguins in that community uh, because because in that society penguins communicate with one another through the medium of song uh, Mumble is unable to sing, but instead he's born tap dancing, and uh, this is what marks him out as different. Um, uh, in discussion with my uh, students about the cultural politics of representation in in this film, it's interesting. Every year, at least one of them, uh, without being prompted by me, um, offers up a reading uh, of that as a depiction of disability, which I think is really interesting as a way to um, uh, uh, um, you know match up what else is going on here in terms of it being a depiction of otherness and racial otherness uh, uh, as well. Um, and uh, it's, certainly, it's certainly used as something to ostracise him uh, uh, from the community. But anyway, um, I'm digressing far away from where I wanted to arrive at, which was um, the uh, late development of Mumble as a result of that, meaning that he sheds his downy baby feathers later than his peers. And and it sheds in such a way that creates the visual aesthetic of a black and white tuxedo, which very, very clearly like invokes imagery uh, of tap dancers wearing tuxedos from not only the history of uh, Hollywood cinema, uh, but the whole history of the uh, tap dancing uh, tradition. But it, it like visually anchors him, anchors him to... Um, uh, tap dancing stars of the past, uh, like the Nicholas Brothers, like um, Bill Bojangles Robinson, uh, uh, and live action performances by Savian Glover himself. So for me, the 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 bow ties and and the fact that um, 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 Mumbles uh, uh, feather shedding takes place in a way which produces the imagery of a black and white tuxedo. Like cements the, the 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 reading of the film um, as as racialized neo neo minstrelsy. I um I have to talk about Hugh Jackman a bit here. I think because um I mean what is Hugh Jackman doing in this this film? Because uh, I don't mean like literally physically. I, you know the poli- we've already sort of addressed the sort of economic reason why all these sort of prominent white actors are sort of taking on these roles. But I mean like the 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 his vocal performance really feeds into what you're saying there, Hannah, because there's this odd, um, I don't know, liminality to, to the, the accent that he's doing, and that it seems to be drawing on a lot of um, caricatured um, 
uh, slang that is associated with sort of white writers writing black voices. So it's got a certain touch of the Uncle Remus about it. There's lots of, um, you know, slang that um, that has been incredibly, you know, used incredibly um, troubling throughout racial history, sort of to, to, to demean um, the black figure when put in through the white voice. There's also a sort of um, a whiff of, of, of quotes, white trash to what he's doing in that he seems to be portraying the sort of deadbeat father... Uh, you know, his name's Memphis, infused the sort of southern drawl. Um, certainly as he gets on and his sort of, you know, the character becomes more and more manic and more and more depressed and more and more sort of hapless, th- those intonations within his performance get even more. Uh, and, you know, anyone that sort of has some some knowledge of, of sort of, you know, the figure of white trash and its troubled relationship with race and all that, and you know, going back to, again, links to slavery and things like that, you know. So, you know, before we even get to sort of mumble becoming adult, we get this odd, um, you know, we have this odd sort of, you know, um, racializing going on in Hugh Jackman's performance as the as the father as the inept father we should you know stress yeah Memphis is as Alex describes uh an inept father who's very explicitly coded as a southern white man both through his accent um uh, through the fact that he is named Memphis which of course geographically locates him in the U.S. deep south and um uh in that little reunion scene towards the end between Mumble and um, Memphis that takes place, that's precipitated by another one of the penguins um, explicitly describing Memphis as a, a deadbeat dad uh, in the dialogue. Uh, but also significant here, I think, in terms of cementing that reading of the film's uh, uh, racial politics is the um, the intertextual reference that's clearly also being made to Elvis Presley, uh, not only uh, uh, through the fact that his name is um, Memphis, which famously, of course, is the hometown of Elvis Presley, but also through the fact that uh, Memphis's heart song that he uses to woo Norma Jean in the opening sequence of the film is Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel. And this, this like, like sets a lot of alarm bells ringing for me when it, when I realised that um, Memphis, in some respects, was supposed to be a version uh, uh, of Elvis Presley, given that Elvis Presley is arguably the most famous white appropriator of black culture in the history of US popular culture. And uh, given everything else that is uh, uh, going on here um, with the tap dancing, uh, that just seemed very uh, significant. And in fact, that's just one of many examples uh, of instances in the film um, where music by African-American artists is being performed through the uh, uh, vocal performances of, of, of white actors. I mean, obviously, the first film does uh, an awful lot with, with um, the, the kind of music of Stevie Wonder right from right from the start. And actually, it's, it's the famous sort of I Wish sequence where he's mumble starts starts to assert himself physically. I mean, I just, I, I was sort of interested in, in the kind of, you know, I was going to say the spectacle of the other, because, but that's too obvious for me to say the spectacle of the other, but the spectacle of the other. I mean, it's not irrelevant. It's perfectly valid. About a page of my notes is about that, Chris. Go for it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, I mean, you know, if we're thinking about, you know, Right, Stuart Hall's writing on on racialized regimes of representation, on stereotyping, um, the staging of racial difference. On the one hand, yes, Mumble is is a is a character who 
extra textually or industrially we can read as um a form of, of as you say, neo-minstrelsy or, or the, the the white appropriation of black culture. And yet at the same time, he's also a character who is involved in a sort of, you know, he, if we're thinking about the, the, the values that are often attributed, and Stuart Hall talks about this, and, and there's a, a kind of a quote by, in Stuart Hall's writing by Paul Robeson about... Um, uh, the Negro feels rather than thinks, experiences emotions directly rather than interprets them by roundabout and devious abstractions and apprehends the outside world by means of intuitive perception. So Mumble is this really strange character because he is both an example of that sort of neo-minstrelsy um, or certainly he's a, a symptom of, of that kind of um, industrial uh, occlusion of black labour uh, and it's co-option by white bodies or anim- animated bodies that are... That are um, troublingly designed, as you as you pointed out, with the, the use of the bow ties, uh, and yet at the same time, Mumble is is, and you talked about his sort of yeah his his racial and, and physical othering, and I hadn't really thought about the disability angle, but absolutely, um, he, he's also othered in a way that that enforces his absolute blackness in the, because of the way that he is defined physically, um, and it, you know, and this this comes out from anything from you know cultural theory to, to the way that black footballers are described as opposed to white footballers in, in commentary. The difference between intellect and and and, and sort of intuition or, or skill that is it has been honed and developed and and, and skill that is uh, f- fundamental or innate because of the colour of your skin and the way that, that, that yeah black footballers are described in a way that white footballers are, are not. And so there is something interesting about about Mumbler's because he is defined as an anomaly because of his physicality that he is enabled because of his his lack of proclivity for for speech and that's also why I think the film is super interesting one because very few computer animated films are musicals so this is this is a rare instance of that but it seemed like Mumble is a character that the film sometimes tries or thinks it tries really hard to be affectionate towards his difference when actually the reactions of the other character to his to his difference the fact that he has that sort of that he is othered because he is physical uh, and that and because that physicality is tied in the way that the film was produced to blackness presents something that is really he is both he is both i don't know yet indicative of white performance of black identity and blackface but equally he doesn't he also, it kind of, as a character, experiences the the quote unquote benefits of being black, i.e., that he's defined by his emotions, by his physicality. He's defined as being intuitive in the way that he performs. So there's something, and 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 his physicality is something that he just can't help. And so all of that is embedded into his character in a way that really interestingly stages exactly that sort of kind of racial racial politics that that perhaps we all we all kind of find so so troubling. Absolutely, yeah. And so exactly as you're talking about there, Chris, um, uh, Mumble dances his feelings in the moment that he feels them. And that lends itself so clearly and obviously um, uh, uh, to to a reading of his characterization in terms um, of, uh, and uh, uh, Tanine Allison has written about this in in, in her work on the film, um, in in terms of mind-body dualism, uh, that, that dichotomy that associates uh, the intellectual and the cerebral with whiteness uh, 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 and the embodied and the intuitive with blackness, exactly um, uh, as you say. Mm. And the film goes to lengths to associate mumble with that side of the mind, body, but uh, I beg your pardon, with the mind-body split. Um, uh, yeah. I, and, and 
what that feeds into is, you know, from my perspective, the um, the imaginative quality of of the movie, the thing that the film's trying to sell. I mean, we said this at the at the outset, but to sort of return to and and clarify, you know, the film rests on this um, imaginative. Um, quotes a uh, spectacle of a dancing penguin and you know that, that it's been said by a lot of fantasy theorists that fantasy stories essentially only tell two, two types of stories which is they either tell stories um, about an imaginative response to the self um, so a genie um, a magical uh, flying nanny um, represents a certain mode of subjectivity that is fantastical and, and pleasurable because it does things that we can't do and, and allows us to sort of embody that or it tells stories about another and, and a fantastical um, other which sort of means it all, only really ever tells stories about the self because of course the other is a, a way of projecting from the self onto rather than um, a representation of something in and of itself um, so so you know what this is is a is a is a prolonged fan- fantasy of other, um, and the fantasy you know so there's there's all the things we've mentioned in terms of the specific design elements, but at a fundamental level, this is a story about a, a certain kind of subjectivity doing something it shouldn't be able to do, um, and rather than us um, acknowledging that 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 means our understanding of a penguin subjectivity is flawed, we laugh at it. Um, and we find it pleasurable for its um, for its absurdity, um, and and so there's just something obviously incredibly racialized about the nature of that. And I think it's it's Ebony Elizabeth Thomas who writes a lot about sort of um, what she calls the dark fantastic, which is sort of representations of race um, through popular uh, fantasy fiction, which has you know 90% you know the statistics are somewhere around that region written by white authors so you know the dark fantastic is not a, not a black fantastic not something owned by and celebrating black culture but something that is a projection of white fantasies onto 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 black identity so this is a film where the the, the whole nature of the spectacle is basically what the end shot is right of a bunch of humans laughing at a bunch of penguins um, and and saving the penguins and and you know and doing the you know the you know but saving them because they they titillate and amuse them not because they take them seriously uh, so there's you know just at a fundamental level of of what the film asks us to enjoy and to fantasize about there is something deeply troubling going on here and then we arrive back at minstrelsy uh, in that in in that final mm. scenes where in that final scene where the the penguins are, are performing for the enjoyment of the humans. Mm. Well, that, but they they do, and then that then is extended into the credits where they're performing yes. for a different set of humans. Um, and I think yeah, I had a couple of notes about the the sort of. I mean, I'm, I'm always fascinated by animated characters that manage to find their way into logos and credit sequences. This is old. This is old news. I love a bit of that. Ever since that Pixar lamp did some stuff in a logo, I love a bit of that. Um, but absolutely, I think nowhere is that sort of the film's black appropriation and and uh, and troubling staging of racial difference made more apparent in this sort of tap dancing performance within the credit sequence where they are literally spotlighted uh, and essentially perform this black and white minstrel show for a couple of minutes towards the end of the film, which I think continues exactly exactly what you're what you're saying. Um, I was I was also sort of thinking about writing around. And and you you talked about it, Hannah. The the sort of the role of the intellect and it, the intellectual or intellectualism related to whiteness and and sort of key colonialist discourses, um, animalization, infantilization, the sort of spatial separation of of order and chaos and center and periphery, and then also light and darkness. Um, uh, and rationality's relationship to light, and all these sorts of sort of tropes of empire, as as um, Shamat and Stam 
talk about and the idea of immaturity and, and all these sorts of things. Um, and certainly I think there's something it would be interesting to sort of go through those sorts of tropes of empire and, and relate it to, to to Happy Feet because there seems an awful lot that the film does um, beyond its its sort of tap dancing to really on the one hand yes it removes the agency and, and activity of, of of Glover and his his sort of and his tap dancing embodies this sort of spectacle of the other but at the same time it it does an all, the film does an awful lot of other things. Um, that we could file under problematic, like massively problematic. Um, there's a bit where I think it's the the I wish sequence again, where Mumbles described as a funky little fella, um, mm. and the use of language and and how language is being used to describe Mumbles' intuitive quality. Um, that his expression, as you said, are are something that he sort of he dances away his feelings absolutely. Um, and so there's, I mean, there's there's sort of so much to to sort of say about the. Um, the film formally when he's dancing to Stevie one of the camera kind of rotates around him um, and you get characters say things that's weird all right and just just little things like that that are that are in accumulation I think that lead then to this closing credit sequence that staged this this minstrel show um, Gloria's description of mumble as a hippity hoppity fool yeah. stands out in relation to the example that you've just yeah. given as well I think so I mean this I suppose this speaks to a broader question of of sort of how I was, it's not that can animated images be racist. Uh, it's it's how do we understand animated images um, in terms of their their rhetoric or their ability to enunciate, their ability to both dilute and also amplify. And so animation becomes this sort of is the animation is always the thing that exists between kind of us and the world. You know, I always tell my students it's the thing that that mediates whether it's an internet advert, uh, a banner, a moving computer graphic on a screen whatever it is it's the thing that exists between us and the world and because it has this sort of knife edge ability to both um dilute something as oh it's just for children i suppose fantasy suffers from a similar kind of thing that it only I've, you've talked about this before alex that it, it's often only considered to mean something fantasy only means something if we can read it kind of politically but animation has this ability to dilute its subject matter and also to amplify exactly these problematic racial structures that we're, we're sort of talking about so the actual animation and the motion capture of the film becomes its central problem I think I completely agree. Yeah. And in, in a lot of ways that I think that uh, uh, that is why racialized anthropomorphism is such a trope mm. uh, uh, in film in films like Happy Feet in, in enabling uh, the negotiation of racial discourse that we would otherwise view as straightforwardly uh, problematic. Mm. Um, and one uh, one issue I have with with teaching this film every year is it does seem to really polarize uh, my students in terms of whether they can accept what they are seeing mm. as racial discourse. Um, and so it, I, I always find it really interesting to see the, inter the critical interpretive journey that the students go on uh, when they start to be able to uh, identify strategies of sublimation and processes of negotiation that are taking place through the use of animation uh, uh, in, in order uh, to both uh, disguise and negotiate that racial discourse. But every year without fail, there's always a few who remain resistant and will never will we'll never uh, get past it's, it's just it's just yeah. about penguins yeah well, well it's, yeah it's that thorny issue of overinterpretation isn't it which is um is it the sontag essay that talks about overinterpretation i mean i just it's the bane of everyone's sort of you know teaching career because it's it's the thing that undergraduates struggle with the most i think is this is this anxiety over overinterpreting something and perhaps people who are listening now feel like we might be overinterpreting the movie in some respect i don't sort of i don't know everyone else stands on this i don't really believe in overinterpretation i believe in missing i don't either I, I believe in misinterpretation 
misinterpretation, yeah. But to me, happy feet, like, just doesn't seem to me like a likely candidate uh, for overinterpretation. Like, there is so much contextual baggage to bring to a, a reading of the text through the lens of uh, racial politics. Um, uh, but it's cute penguins. And so we're always going to meet that level of resistance. I think exactly what you're saying is that is that actually quite often what over-interpretation tends to be mean when it's invoked more and more these days, I think, is a, is a resistance to the, the process of thinking through that, that, mm. that you know, that we're, we're asking our students to go through. I mean, that doesn't mean they have to arrive at the same conclusion, but there's this idea that even thinking about this is... Um, is is a flawed exercise because we've 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 reached a level of meaning that that's unnecessary or no longer meaningful or all this sort of stuff and it's usually politically charged in terms of what is called in over you know people are very happy for example to delve into the sort of um um what philosophy of time in a film like inception um mm. but they won't necessarily be so happy to think about um the way in which any any image in you know uh, an anthro you know, anthrocene to use that word. Um, any image is inherently political and has all of these issues going on. I mean, it, it, it can be, it can be, it could potentially have a benign effect within that structure, but but it, but it's there, and, and and the context informs the meaning. So yeah, I mean, you know, we're getting into a more abstract debate now, but um, yeah, but I mean, it, it, like it's it's only abstract up to a point because there are real world stakes when we're talking about racial discourse. Mm. And um, uh, but 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 still, just like carrying on the thread that uh, Alex has started with this, um, uh, which also links back to what um, uh, Chris was saying about animation and fantasy are the key here. Because I don't have this problem when I'm teaching Get Out, mm-hmm. even though like a lot of the issues that we discuss in relation to happy feet are identical to the issues that we discuss in relation to get out the mind body dualism trope uh, uh, for example um is 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 it's certainly uh, not equivalent but like arguably what's going on with elijah wood's um uh uh voicing of Savian glover's performance in happy feet is in some ways uh, analogous uh, to the plot of uh, Get Out, which appropriates uh, black bodies for the benefit of white supremacists. Not saying Elijah Wood is a white supremacist. No. Um, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, if I, if I could nod any more, I would. I, I, I mean, the, the there's, I mean, there's lots of interesting things. One, again, we're back to this issue yeah, of, of, of animation's ability to talk about these things in a way that is um, meaningful. I suppose it also gets us back to the actual importance of of thinking about the star voice. Not, I mean, discourses around the star voice and animation have tended to lean towards um, a kind of kind of mar- basically marketing and label. On the one hand, they used as sort of um, names to sell a tentpole tentpole summer film. Fine, um, although in David Borbell, I think one of his online blogs has said actually, do we do the star voices actually? And he uses Hugh Jackman's role. This is two film. This is the Happy Feet is one of two films that Hugh Jackman voiced in two thousand and six. The other was Flushed Away, where he did an, uh, uh, the accent of a kind of an, uh, an upper class uh, British rat named Roddy St James. But anyway, um, so he talks that Borwell talks about the actual ability. Actually, do we really go and see an animated film because of the star in it? 
He's like, do we really? I mean, he was he's kind of not too sure. But anyway, it's it's often considered a marketing tool, but also about labor. That animation voiceover is something that that um that stars do in between other roles. And I've seen so many case study. I mean, I remember one. I, I, there's a case study of, of like Tom Hanks, and they talk about his roles in the '90s, and they don't talk about the two Toy Story films because the Toy yeah. Story films were the things that he did in between the other more meaningful roles. And so, animated voiceover has often been considered as something that you know Woody Allen did five days work on Ants, and Johnny Depp did about twenty or so three weeks worth of work on Rango. All these kinds of things that the, this is something that the stars do in between other things and they can do and they can do it remotely they can they can record stuff and have it in all those sorts of things um when actually part of the power of, of star voices gets us to exactly these kinds of questions and and so there's there's a lot of a lot of work on i think the shrek films and also madagascar so there's a book um called Animating Difference, Race, Gender and Sexuality in Contemporary Films for Children that uses Madagascar as a really interesting example to talk about the difference between Ben Stiller voicing Alex the Lion and David Schwimmer voicing Melman the Giraffe. They're defined in certain kinds of ways. I know Melman is particularly neurotic. Um, But then the two black voice actors in the film, uh, Glory the Hippopotamus is one, um, and Marty the Zebra voiced by Chris Rock. And they are defined through their sort of one their physicality but two their kind of proclivity for for quick fire barbs and remarks and so it's a similar kind of thing that animation cloaks i i i really liked what you said about how the sort of the real world stakes of things that animated films do and and how how far we it's not that these films are kind of just made for children because even that debate is is so sort of boring we know that they're not made for children i don't think the sinking of the lusitania in the sort of second decade of the the 20th century was really aimed at children i don't think animation has ever really been for children i think disney has done a lot to 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 direct it in other ways but it's it's we don't need to invoke that as a reason to study anything but i think the your point about accepting animation as a social discourse is kind of the is 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 the the stakes of, of this and 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 I also wonder whether it's, and, and the, the book Animating Difference talks about this, the sort of same old pedagogies of sex and gender. It's all oh, these, these again, these sex, gender and race again. Here we go. And, and, and I think that coupled with sort of animation's perceived view as a cultural artifact, as an artistic artifact, um, because they are one, a pervasive part of Hollywood and they're full of these sorts of fantastic characters, um, fantastic fantastic characters um allows us to think about things like um race and gender and sexuality but also things like guilt and love and emotion and and um occlusion and what it means to be extraordinary and all those all those kinds of things so i think i I wonder whether the the, as Alex saying about the interpretation, the the overinterpretation, we've all had students that go, it might be just me, but um, or it might be going too far, or students are petrified of kind of going too far. This might be a reach, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, this idea that film has a series of discrete layers, and you go, I'm just doing a surface reading. When a film doesn't have the surface in the way that you think it does, but I think animated films people think of them as having this surface the animated films have a surface of something because behind is Hugh Jackman talking and uh, Brittany Murphy talking and Nicole Kidman and Robin Williams and and, and so Glover tap dancing saving Glover tap dancing yeah um ironic I didn't I didn't list him how how <laughs> how foolish but there's something there's something around animation's status as a medium 
and its particular kind of the particular ontological considerations of animation as a medium that lends itself to this assumption that it has layers, that it has a surface layer of the way the animation as it looks, and then the bit underneath that that's where kind of the labor and, and all that sort of stuff happens. And 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 so yeah, animation can, and it, and it's not sort of a, a malaise of oh we should study it more, but I think you're exactly right, Hannah, that it's more about the. Um, the extent to which we can go on this intellectual journey of accepting animation as this kind of social discourse. Sorry, Alex. So can I throw animals into the equation here? Because I think actually, you know, we people are willing to have discussions more and more about um, animation that nominally represents humans on screen. Yes, that, you know, Disney princess discourse and feminism is a hugely, you know... Um, you know, popular area of debate, yeah. um, and and you know the way you know things like Frozen or Moana um, engage with a legacy of race and gender representation in relation to that is is very part of the way those films are received and and praised and the sort of value system by which we we judge those movies. But there seems to be something sl- more slippery about talking about anthropomorphic characters. There are some where, like culturally, we have been sort of. You know things like you know the racist crows in Dumbo are sort of a thing everyone knows as a go-to, uh, you know point. But for some reason, there's something about animals, you know, taking on human characteristics that's that are both fundamentally racially charged because what you what you know what you embody with this with with this with the anthropomorphic spirit of an animal is you know is just by the very sentence i just said extremely problematic and racially charged and there's a whole history of animal fables the co-option of animal fables the use of animal fables um you know in in relation to all these things both as an as a sort of you know something that belongs to certain cultures so things like anna the spider um you know the brer rabbit stories are, are, are a huge back and forth between um stories that originated from black culture and stories that were used to denigrate black Black culture, um, so there's something about the animal in all this as well that's that's worth picking apart. Yeah, and just in in relation to some of the examples that we've been talking about, mm-hmm. Eddie Murphy is a donkey in Shrek, famously mm-hmm. a beast of burden, uh, and uh, acting in the capacity of sidekick to Shrek. Um, uh, Chris, you brought up Gloria from Madagascar, who is of course a hippo. Uh, and um, the way that the physicality of Gloria the hippo comes across in the Madagascar films is very locatable in relation to pejorative stereotypes of African-American femininity that we see time and again in terms of like um, uh, uh, corporeal excess. Um, uh, uh, and uh, this is something very familiar to us, of course, from colonial discourse uh, uh, through hot and top Venus discourse, for example. No, I mean it, it chimes exactly with this. If if we've got key, we've got key colonial discourses of which, as we know, one was this animalization and its relationship then to, to sort of um, uh, savagery, the definition of body over mind, uh, the interplay between exoticism and eroticism, all the stuff that's that's inbuilt to, to that. Um, and then on the other side, Alex's point about animals and i was thinking about yeah animations anthropomorphic long-standing anthropomorphic project but also how on the one hand that that the use of talking animals does exactly that exaggeration versus diluting thing on the one hand it sort of says well um it, it transplants it dilutes racial relationships the the the, the biracial the biracial buddy movie still exists and it exists in animation that's that's yes. the main that's the main issue here um, but it's sort of 
Yeah, but it sort of diverts. It allows us to sort of well, animation can kind of talk about that, and it can it can map it onto different kinds of animals. It's much more um, aesthetically pleasing to have a zebra and a lion, uh, or an ogre and a and a donkey than it is Eddie Murphy and Mike Myers and all that sort of stuff, you know. Um, but also it, it exaggerates because I think animation does allow it allows through the consideration of the star voice, the use of animals. Um, those sorts of things kind of come together to allow to allow us to talk about um, uh, Orientalism, or it allows us to talk about um, r- racial relationships and how, and probably actually how it allows us to define whiteness as well. Um, and so there's lots and lots of things. Animation's ability to sort of ideologically manifest and plot uh, gender and and race and how to define heroic white masculinity and and what it does to to race when it transplants those kinds of things you know rihanna and um jim parsons are in the dreamworks film home um and one's an alien and one is a human and they use that kind of cross-species alliance to sort of play with play with race in a way that isn't really playing with race but it is playing with race and so something similar in the princess and the frog when um when the romantic relationship between um uh, the two leads is kind of, and it's an interracial relationship if i've remembered rightly right princess tiana is african american and and prince whatever his name was middle eastern or or, or a, a light brown ethnicity um uh, that's non specified um, uh, but their, rom- their interracial romantic relationship is formed when when they're both in the form of the two green frogs and same thing happens in Shrek, right, with um, uh, Shrek and Princess Fiona, uh, w- which in some ways is readable as an, in, uh, an interracial romance on the grounds that Shrek is an ogre and um, and, and, and Fiona is a human, um, uh, uh, albeit like he's coded as white through his Scottishness, of course, yeah. uh, at much as the, the elder penguins in Happy Feet are coded as white through their Scottishness. Um, and uh, that also the cements the reading of mind-body dualism in that film that we were talking about earlier i'm just i'm aware we've been talking for about an hour and two things have struck <laughs> me number one i'm pretty sure about an hour ago hannah you um, presented a four-point list and i think officially we're still on bow ties so i thought yeah. i'd flag that up sure uh, and then the second thing is that we haven't mentioned robin williams yet and i think we need a good 10 minutes to really make sure we, we deal with robin williams because of course that also allows us to talk about the final racial identity category that we have that this film absolutely is all over but we haven't talked on which is the sort of the hispanic identity because we have robin williams playing um a, well, so i guess a three-part role kind of although one part is sort of one person but we've got the he's playing is it ramon one of the sort of um, pesky i'm using my quotation marks again sidekick characters who are very obviously coded as mexican um uh who are the sort of yeah uh, whimsical fast-talking sidekicks to mumble um as he goes on this journey throughout the various sort of islands and then we've got lovelace this sort of exotic shaman character um kind of you know faith healer-esque figure both played by robin williams and the legacy that he has as a performer of an- in animation and and you know as a, as a white man so so where where shall we start <laughs> Where shall we start? So yeah, just uh, 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 continuing what uh, Alex said. Uh, that's right. Um, Robin Williams voice, voices Ramon, who is like the leader of this little gang of Adelie penguins, and I think it's noteworthy that it's a different species of penguin. Um, uh, and that each of the different species of penguin that we're pre- presented with. Uh, in the film is racially coded for us. So the emperor penguins are racially coded as white, as we've established, except for Mumble, as we've established. Um, 
the Adili penguins are coded as uh, uh, Latino. Um, and uh, uh, interestingly, I believe that the the other members of that little gang of Adili penguins are voiced by um, uh, well-known Latin American yeah. comic actors. Uh, but but the leader of them is Robin Williams, arguably performing oral blackface. Um, uh, and then and then Lovelace is a rock hopper penguin who has got very flamboyant kind of feathering. Some people have read this as an homage to Little Richard, um, but with like he's he's also he's also one of the uh, he's also one of two overweight penguins that we see in the film, um, uh, uh, both of who um, are the uh, only characters coded as ethnically black. And so that's Lovelace, um, who, uh, uh, as Alex pointed out, is presented as like mystical uh, uh, shaman uh, uh, figure, also um, like channeling performances of uh, African-American preacher and uh, and then Seymour, who was the rapping penguin uh, in the Emperor Penguin co- community, uh, who, who yeah, are arguably the only member of the Emperor Penguin community coded uh, as uh, ethnically other than white. And um, uh, Robin Williams, as you, as you, I'm sure you can imagine, and perhaps you remember from the time, w- w- was questioned a lot um, uh, about the influences uh, for his vocal performances as Ramon and uh, uh, Lovelace. And interestingly, when talking about Lovelace, there are three people he names, and those people are Don King, um, Barry White, and Al Sharpton. Uh, so he albeit as i'm sure you remember what robin williams was like in interviews he tended to stay in character while conducting the interviews and he very much did this when he was promoting or uh, uh, on the publicity trail for uh, happy feet so he mentioned all all of their names but you know he, he does it with irony he he does it uh, with humor and arguably he does it somewhat defensively um uh, uh, and uh, cracks some joke about not taking work away from African-American actors when arguably that's exactly what he's yeah. done. Yeah. No, well, this is why I think a film like a film like Happy Feet is, although it's, it's a film that's sort of rooted in the energy and vigor of movement as a form of expression and as, and as a site of performance, um, it's, it's also spotlighting the real importance of voice both as an expressive tool and uh, as an industrial kind of practice. It's about, because the film is also about the power of song as it is about the visual spectacle of dance and, and as you said, the, the, uh, the acquisition of a heart song between, between penguins. Of course, we've, I, know, I know we've talked previously about Robin Williams' history as a, as a vocal performer, as an actor, as a comedian, his um, role in Aladdin and, and uh, many other sort of, I guess, expressive performances in live action that have been considered an extension. You know, Mrs. Doubtfire, I think his role is even a child's like animated voice actor. And so he's he's very much sort of linked to, to um, the spectacle of the of the voice. But that's why I think this film is so sort of, yes, he, he voices all these different characters with different sorts of accents. I think he's also the voice of a seal as well, Cletus the seal. Um, so he does a lot of sort of, sort of work voice work in the in the film and 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 again i think the the his contribution to star voice acting i think is sort of reflexively acknowledged because um isn't it loveless who's you have that sort of uh, 
you're about to meet the one and only Lovelace in the flesh right here, right now. Uh, right on right now, sorry. Um, he's a character who's defined vocally before we see him. And so they're really amping up the sort of proclivity of this this character. And, and as I said, there are sequences that sort of relate to ventriloquy when Ramon, I think, who hides out of sight as Mumbles sort of mimes pretending to sing his version of Sinatra's My Way. And so that, I think, coupled with Lovelace's pr- protracted reveal presents exactly the sort of the, the pleasure of, of voice work in animation and that sort of that moment where where certainly I think Happy Feet emphasizes that potential for just the pleasure of, uh, of, of listening. Um, yeah. I- it's only just occurred to me that, of course, that sequence is a bit like the sequence at the end of Singing in the Rain, right? Where um, <laughs> Kathy Lamont voices um, Lena Lockwood, right? But isn't it actually that that that, oh. that, that like she's dubbed in, in in and of itself? Like, there's a whole like she's she's performing a dubbing, but is being dubbed by the film, which is of course exactly what's going on in Happy Feet, as we've we've mentioned. So we've got uh, Robin Williams. Doing a Hispanic accent, doing the the muse that the replacing the voice of Elijah Wood, who is of course replacing the voice of the black performance that we see on the screen. So it's it's dramatizing to conceal. Yeah, yeah, no. Yeah. I, I, I um I'm gonna do a I'm gonna do a drop actually. I did do a little case study of Happy Feet in in the book, and actually I don't. I mentioned singing in the rain, but actually not in the way that you've. I sort of keep it quite superficial that we have that sort of super uh, that um, convincing synchronization of, of auditory and visual elements that kind of secures the illusion. But actually, if we think about the the, con- the labour contributions, that, the, that it adds that extra layer that it's it's about that sort of sleight of hand that animation is as a form of of, of kind of technological illusion is then sort of I don't know doubled or or trebled by the by exactly that. That layering process, the the process of concealment, of of denial, of disavowal, of occlusion, um, that all comes back to again. I think because the film is a, also a particular kind of animation that adds in the sort of motion captured dimension to all of this, that's, and the fact that it's saving Glover sort of further complicates um, how we might consider the the sort of laborious and performative possibilities of motion capture dubbing all those all those sorts of things um yeah i I also wanted to i noticed that that yeah we are we could spend a long time talking about this um and in fact we should probably do the sequel at some point but we've talked about robin williams um the idea of the post-racial i wonder whether that's a good sort of place to because we talked about it sort of neo-minstrelsy um aesthetic and 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 you gestured actually and i know a lot of your work is around um uh, I guess the the post prefix in lots and lots of ways, and so I was. You mentioned about the film's relationship to the post racial, and so I wonder whether that's uh, not to reclaim the film per se, but to just sort of think through that a little bit. Um, is the film kind of post racial? No, but I do think that that's what it's going for. I yeah. think I think it, it it's like the narrative is contrived, like to 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 try to. Um, uh, uh, arrive at a point where the film gets to celebrate post-racial harmony through, um, I guess, uh, the the Emperor Penguin's community's acceptance, not only acceptance of um, uh, Mumble's uh, difference, uh, but integration of it into the society. Hence, uh, we have that, um, that, that, that final musical number sequence uh, where everyone is dancing together uh, uh, and most people are singing too. Um, and uh, so, but 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 in light of all the other problematic aspects of the film's uh, cultural politics of race, the 
the celebration of post-racial harmony like is not a satisfying narrative conclusion to this mm. film and it just it just doesn't work in that respect um yeah. so I, I think it's one of those things where it's it's not it's not post-racial but it was produced in a historical moment at which post-racial uh, discourse was um being very successfully negotiated uh, and post-racial harmony seems certainly like what they were going for 2006 so um uh obama is on the rise uh, the uh, 2008 election is on the horizon. Um, uh, Will Smith, arguably the most bankable star in Hollywood, and yeah. um, uh, but it's so. But that message is so at odds with so much else about what the film is doing with racial discourse and racial politics. I think you're absolutely right. I'd not really thought about that sort of importance and I, and I wonder going back to Hollywood animation of that particular period the first Madagascar is 2005 mm. so it, it fits exactly with that time frame obviously the, the I think the, the second Shrek film is 2004 um, and then the third one is 2007 so there's I'd not really thought about that that sort of yeah the sort of pre-Obama presidency and and all that that lead up to it and what what Hollywood was doing to sort of negotiate and actually animation's role in negotiating that sort of post-racial sort of cultural Im, Im, I want not impulse but but um environment I guess um, but I guess we should leave it there we've I, I we need to do the second one so we could just sure I mean I need to watch it first but other than that sounds good well you don't no you don't you don't Alex you don't need to watch it we'll just yeah I'll just project my imaginary onto it I don't think I've taken the message from our last conversation I watched all the penguin fatherhood movies so that you don't have to there we go <laughs> And that's the byline for the podcast. Um, Hannah, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show and, and talking to us about Happy Feet and helping us digest the movie. I've got lots of thoughts post this to think about in terms of my own work, in terms of the relation between sublimation, representation and fantasy, because it's always something I'm trying to work through. So from my perspective, thank you very much. I'm sure the listeners found it um, terrific um, and, um, and thought-provoking. Um, your book is still available if people would like to um, read it and access your work. Yes, it's available in, in hardback, ebook, and paperback on demand from Routledge. Terrific, terrific, Lovely. terrific. Um, uh, I guess that's that's us for another episode. You can carry on the conversation, uh, and hopefully this is a, a one that will provoke conversation, um, at fantasy-animation.org. You can read Hannah's blog post that's, I think, coming out at the same time or within a week or so of this podcast. It will still be yeah, available yeah. And, and fresh up on our screen, so you can um, access that and access our archive. And, of course, we're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Reddit, at fananimresearch, F-A-N-A-N-I-M research. Do take part in the conversations whether uh whether you want to give us some feedback defend the movie perhaps from some of the accusations we've thrown at it or or join in join in the the troubling discourse that we have unraveled here either way um we'd love to hear from you hannah thank you so much once again it was a pleasure thank you so much for having me listeners we'll see you on the next episode take care and goodbye bye, bye.